We're going to be in Acts 9 if you want to turn there. It's page 633 in the Bible. It's in the, in the chair in front of you if that makes it easier to find. Uh, we're going to be at the first part of Acts chapter 9. We're going to do the second part. So Acts chapter 9 is split up basically two main characters. The main character in all of Scripture, by the way, is Jesus. But uh, we see the focus in on chapter 9 be on two different people. One is Paul or Saul. And, uh, and at this point in, in human history, he's still referred to as Saul, by the way. We'll get into that in later weeks. But the first 31 verses are focusing in on Saul. And then from 32 to the end of the chapter, we go back to seeing what, excuse me, what Peter is up to and where he is at. So next week, we're going to look at the latter part of chapter 9 and see uh, more of a focus back in on what Peter is doing. But the first part, we see this conversion of Saul, which is a major turning point in the life of the church in the storyline of the New Testament. So last week, if you were able to hear it uh, and be here, what we did was we looked at the obedience that came from Philip, and that his obedience led to the gospel changing the Ethiopian eunuch's heart on his way uh, down on the road to Gaza. So the thing that was unique about talking about the Ethiopian eunuch is knowing that he's a Gentile and he was a eunuch. So two things that were that he was. That, that were decided for him, that he didn't have any control over, and those, those things that he had no control over eliminated him from having access to the Word of God, uh, eliminated him from being taught under someone who did know the Word. So he wasn't allowed to be at the temple. He was allowed to read the Scriptures. They couldn't really, uh, they couldn't really legislate that, but what they could legislate was who was worthy to come into the temple and send to the teaching of the high priests and, and, and the other members of the high council. So they could say that, and he was doubly unqualified. And so that's why Luke emphasizes those two things in his life. So when Philip goes up to him and hears him reading out loud on a chariot on his way to Gaza, he's reading the prophet Isaiah out loud while he's on this chariot, and Philip goes up to him and he says, do you understand what you are reading? It's a beautiful question. It's not an insulting one at all because the Ethiopian eunuch looks back at him and says, how can I understand what I'm reading when, when, I, when no one's ever taught it to me? And what he's doing is he's acknowledging the fact that he's not allowed to be taught this stuff, that up until this point in his life, no one has ever been willing to teach him anything about the Word, and yet there is already a hunger in him to know what it says or else why would he be reading it, Right? So Philip explains to him the story of Jesus, which I think is beautiful. He, he opens that passage, he reads it with him, and then he says, this is who it's talking about, because the Ethiopian says, I finally have someone that I can ask a question to. Is the author of what I'm reading talking about himself or talking about someone else? And Philip says, well, let me answer that question. I have a softball question. That's what I said last week. Like when, when you're in a situation where someone asks you a question about the Bible, that's one that you want. When something is blatantly about Jesus, say, who's this talking about? It's like, Jesus. You know, like that one's an easy one. So Philip takes the opportunity to really tell this person about Jesus, and it transformed this guy's life. He gets baptized in a pool on the side of the road uh, at one point in the story. It's a beautiful thing. And uh, we see what obedience looks like when God calls a man or a woman to go somewhere, and they immediately obey. We see the results of their faithfulness to God play out in the story of a real conversion, not a fake one like we saw in Simon the Sorcerer the week before. 
So Acts 7 and 8 introduced us to a guy named Saul. Now, obviously, this guy's pretty well-known, and he's a well-established member of the Jewish religious elite. So he's a pretty well-established member of this elite Jewish society because of his position that we see him have. But for some reason, there's no mention of him up until we get into the story in Acts. So Acts chapter 7, we see him introduced, and it says that in, in verse 58 of chapter 7, it says that as they pulled Stephen outside of the city gates to stone him to death, that the young men were throwing their robes at the feet of a man named Saul. When I preached through that part, I said, it's almost like they're saying, here, hold my jacket so I can get a better throw. I still mean that. But I also was researching this a little bit more. And do you know, as far as I can tell, there's only one other place in Scripture that I could find where people threw their robes at the feet of someone. And it was Jesus on Palm Sunday as He's coming into Jerusalem and they recognize His authority. They recognize His kingship. They recognize His, uh, his standing as someone they want to lead to be led by. And so these men, when they lay their jackets at the feet of Saul, they're actually making a symbolic gesture that he is their leader. And then it says later on that Saul gave his approval to the stoning of Stephen. So there's an authority there that he carries. So for some reason, this is the first mention we have of Saul of Tarsus in the Scriptures. Now, I'm sure if we dug deeper into historical, doc historical documents, we'd probably find other mentions of him at earlier points in human history. But for what we have in the canonical Scriptures, this is the first time we see Saul mentioned. It says that uh, they laid their feet, their, their robes at his feet, and it's this sign of submission to his authority, that this, this sign that he's trusted, that he is held at a high esteem, and then he gives permission for them to go on with the execution of Stephen. He has an authority given to him. We see him show up again in uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 3. Uh, Philip, it's the story of Philip going into the Samaritans. And uh, as the church is scattering out of Jerusalem, verse 3 of chapter 8 says, But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So here's the mentions we have of Saul. We have a pretty good idea of the kind of guy he is, right? Saul is a tyrant. He is a religious zealot who will stop at nothing to squelch a message that is counter to the one he lives. So he will do whatever is in his power, and it seems as though he has been given a lot of power and a lot of leeway to be able to do whatever he wants to stop this message of Jesus from going forward. And we've talked about that a lot. We've talked about how the whole way back to Matthew 28, we see this plot amongst the Jewish leaders to lie about what happened to the body of Jesus. We know there's an acknowledgement on their part that they can't fully explain what has happened to this Jesus who they hopefully in their minds murdered and got off the scene. But now all of a sudden the strong wind blows through Jerusalem and everybody's going crazy for Jesus again. And now it's growing exponentially. They can't stop it. So they're trying to cut the head off of the snake best they can. They're trying to stop this, this movement of followers of the way as they're referred to. And, uh, and they're doing everything in their power to make sure that this stops. 
And Saul is sort of the one that they have entrusted with the leading the movement to stop the followers of Jesus. So that's where the story picks up today in Acts chapter 9, uh, we pick up. And so listen to how it starts. Acts chapter 9, we're going to go through the first 31 verses, but I might stop along the way here. Uh, so Acts 9, let's start there. In verse 1, it says this, but Saul, so let's, let's just start again here. Let's just get our, get our bearings to where we were. Where did we leave off? Because anytime it starts off with, but Saul, there's an assumption that we know what's happening at the same time, right? So it says that the Ethiopian eunuch in verse 39, he came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Verse 40, but Philip found himself in Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now, if I had a map up there, I would show you that Caesarea is the exact region that Paul is headed towards so let's pick up there. So we know where Philip is, right? So far, Saul has, has uh, centralized the persecution of the church to the city of Jerusalem. It says, but Saul, verse 1, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So we know what he's up to, right? Now it's upping his ante. Do you realize every time we've heard Saul's name thus far, it has gotten more aggressive in nature? Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Let's just stop there and see what's happening here. He goes to the high priest. First, he's still breathing hatred towards the church. He's still breathing threats. Now listen, it separates those things. It doesn't say that he's threatening to murder. I've heard people interpret it that way, but that's not what Luke says. It says that he's breathing threats and murder. So there, there isn't just a threat of murdering people who follow after Jesus and execution similar to what happened to Stephen. This kind of stuff is actually happening. He, wants, he goes to the high priest, to the high council, and he has access to these guys, by the way, which is remarkable in and of itself when you consider the culture of the day. He goes to them and he says, I want you to give me permission, give me papers, that give me authority and permission to take this tyranny outside of the walls of Jerusalem. I've got to leave this area. I've got to leave it because the gospel has, the story of Jesus has, and, and I've got to squash it. So I want you to give me papers that I can send along to the synagogues at Damascus, all the ones in that region, and I want them to know that I'm on my way to save them from the trouble of having to deal with these followers of the way, as Saul refers to them, I'm going to try to get ahead of this thing. So I need you to write up papers from the high priest to the synagogues of Damascus that say that I can do this because then I'm going to go in, I'm going to, uh, if I find anyone who belongs to the way, he, say, he tells them, men or women, I might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he's, in his mind, he's going to start a parade of prisoners from wherever he finds them down into Jerusalem where they will face trial or perhaps prison or even an execution, depending on what level they decide to throw out on them. So that's where we're at, verse 3. 
Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So let's just stop there and see what's happening. It's pretty self-explanatory. He's on his way to where he thinks he needs to be. Now, I have found this to be remarkable. I've seen Luke explain something like this several times now, that, that someone is on their way. As he went on his way, that's verse 3 in chapter 9. If you were to flip to the book of Luke, who was also the same author as this, the letters in Acts, the story of the church... He talks in Luke chapter 24 about followers who were on their way to a town called Emmaus. And while they were on their way, they met Jesus. And it completely altered their lives. Actually, they turned and went back to Jerusalem and told the followers about it. That's where our vision comes from. Our, our, the legs underneath our church that move Journey Church forward come from the story in that passage. How Jesus interacts with those two followers in Luke 24 is where discovered disciple delivery even comes from. Maybe my ears are just tuned into it. I don't know, but I find it remarkable that last week when we saw an Ethiopian eunuch, it says that Philip was called to go down to the road, and as the eunuch was on his way, Philip went up and asked him, do you understand what you're reading? And Philip interacts with the eunuch the exact same way that Jesus does with the two followers on their way to Emmaus, and now we're going to see Jesus step into the story of Saul and do the exact same thing that he did on the road to Emmaus and do the exact same thing that Philip did on the road to Gaza. I find it to be remarkable, by the way. I don't think it's coincidental to think that while his... He has a plan. He is driven to succeed through this plan. He has seen success from this plan up to this point. So he's on his way with a clear vision, a clear path forward. The paper's giving him permission to do it. And he is going into that town and he's going to do what he has mapped out to do. And he will be successful. That's Saul's attitude. It tends to be true. I don't know about your story. But it tends to be true in my story and in the stories so many others that I've had the privilege of knowing is that when you meet Jesus, it's you meet him while you're on your way to somewhere you've planned to go. Sometimes we find him whenever we're on our way to someplace we never had a plan to be in. And in the middle of that crisis, we meet Jesus. But a lot of times we have in our minds, this is where we're going. Here's my five-year plan. This is what it's going to look like. This is how it's going to play out. That's me, and somewhere along that way, you meet Jesus, and that plan doesn't matter anymore. And that's exactly what happens to Saul, and it changes the course of human history. This moment changes the course of human history as we know it. Pick up at verse 4. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Imagine how Paul felt in this moment. Now, Paul becomes face-to-face -face with the exact same one he had made his life goal to shut down. 
Everything that he... I don't know if Saul was involved in the conversation that built up in Matthew 28 to create the lie that Jesus' body was stolen by his followers. The one that tells us in the middle part, I think it's around verse 16 in Matthew 28, it tells us that, that you go and tell that lie, and then it tells us, Matthew says that that, that that is the story that's been being told amongst the Jews to this very day, right? It, it perpetuated, it continued to grow. I don't know if Saul was involved in that conversation, but what I do know is that he does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He does not believe it. Actually, he believes quite opposite of that because anything that is said contrary to what he believes is what he's adamantly opposed to, to the point of murder, to the point of execution, to the point of imprisonment. He will do whatever is in his power to shut down the message about Jesus. So this bright light comes, and he hears a voice come out of the light that says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul, I think, for the first time, notices something. He is not persecuting the followers of the way, as he thinks he is. He is persecuting Jesus. I think this is, this is a good opportunity for us to stop and see that any time the gospel is hindered, it's not the person that is, that is feeling the persecution that is being persecuted as much as Jesus is being persecuted. And any time that we do contrary to what the gospel demands of us, any time we live in a prideful manner, we are doing the same thing that Saul is doing. We're persecuting Jesus, Jesus takes this as a personal affront. You didn't kill Stephen, you persecuted me. And he says, why are you doing this, Saul? And Saul's response was, who are you, Lord? Now, we call Jesus Lord, we tend to make those things synonymous. But what Saul is recognizing is, do you remember when those guys threw the jackets at Saul's feet? That was essentially them saying, Lord. That was essentially them giving Saul a place of authority in their lives. That was them signifying that Saul was the one that they were going to listen and follow and respect. And if he said throw the stone, they would throw the stone. If he said throw that person in prison, they'd put him in prison. If he said kill that family, they'd do it. Like that's how loyal they were to Saul. And them throwing their jackets at his feet was like them saying, whatever you say, Lord. So now Saul, just through a blinding light, just a blinding light and a voice, that's all that's happened to him. A blinding light and a voice leads him to say, who are you, Lord? He puts himself at the feet of this voice, at this person, at this blinding light, and says, you are obviously more magnificent than me. I bow to your authority. This is a big moment because we've never seen Saul have to do this in any other way. The only time we've seen him have to do anything remotely close to this is when he goes to the high priest and asks them for papers. That's him submitting to the fact that he can't write the paper. They have to write it. Jesus responds, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He tells him to rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Now, there's no question here from Saul. That's what I find remarkable. He doesn't stop. Say, I already know what I'm going to do when I get to the city. Pick up verse 7. <clears throat> the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. 
So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So instead of Saul going into this city to lay hold of Christians, this is a moment where Jesus lays hold of Saul. This is the moment where Saul's desired goal in life drastically changes, all because he spent some time with Jesus. It's only going to get more rich for him from this point on. Listen to verse 10. We're going to read for a while. This is 10 through 19. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and as the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. It's almost like Ananias is saying, uh, I'm sorry, Lord, I, I must have heard you wrong. I thought you said Saul of Tarsus. And Jesus says, yes, that is what I said. Well, I, don't, I just want to make sure, I just make sure you know who you're talking about. Like this Saul dude, he's killing Christians. He's, he, if, if people claim to know Jesus, you know, because I claim to know Jesus. I am a passionate Jesus follower. <laughs> This man is here to put me in jail or to murder me. Like, you know that, that Saul of Tarsus, that's the one you're talking about. And Jesus says, yes. Go, verse 15, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. Wow. Did you hear that? I want to read it again. The Lord says to Ananias, go, for Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened." So Ananias' call is go. He asks some clarifying questions, and you can't blame the guy. He wants to make sure that this, okay, are we talking about the same Saul, right? You realize how nasty Saul is, God? Like, you want me to go, that's the Saul that I'm going to. And Jesus says, yes. And Ananias doesn't argue with God. I don't want to make it sound like a humorous argument. That's not what he's doing. He's clarifying with God, like, we're talking about the same Saul of Tarsus, right? Like, it's unbelievable that you would call him to do a mighty work in the life of your church. It's unbelievable that you would call him. Do you realize what he's here for? Like, everyone in the known world, except for the two guys that were with him on the road, 
think that Saul is coming into town to murder and imprison Christians. And now Jesus meets with Ananias and says, go and lay your hands on him and watch the scales fall from his eyes and he will receive the Holy Spirit and he will be used as an instrument, a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And if you know anything about the story of Paul, that is very true of his story. He suffered for the name of Jesus. But he also, he also carried the name of Jesus to many Gentiles before kings and to the children of Israel. It says that, uh, that, that scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight, and then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. He made an immediate public proclamation of this drastic change in his life. That's what baptism is. I don't want to sound like I'm banging that drum every week, but I think it's necessary for us to speak into what the Scriptures are saying. There wasn't this waiting to be baptized. There wasn't this waiting to make this public display or, or public proclamation of who you belonged to, there was an immediacy to it. If you are a follower of Jesus for however long and you've never been baptized publicly, immersed in water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then I would challenge you to pray through changing that part of your narrative and being baptized making that public proclamation because Saul does that. And believe me, it cost him a whole lot more than it will cost you. So he rises, he has sight, he's baptized, he takes food, he's strengthened. Now listen, right here we should stop and recognize that no one is undeserving of God's grace. No one is undeserving of God's grace. Do you know how many Christians hated this man? Do you know how many Christians were terrified of him? Do you know how many people who followed Jesus probably spoke horrible things about him and were just downright terrified of his existence? Do you know how many people probably struggled with his worthiness to have the gospel? the worthiness to be saved. Now, wait a second, God, I have been faithful to you my whole life and you're using him to get the story? Using him to write half the New Testament? Why did I live a faithful life all those years? If he's going to get all the credit, he turns his life around and now he gets all of it. Do you hear it? I think if you're honest, you could probably hear yourself in there somewhere. I think sometimes we can, we can undermine God's grace with our own self-righteousness. We think we're something, like we're the older brother story of the prodigal son because we do the right things and we're moral people and we make correct decisions. So we can look down our noses at the fools around us. We can look down our noses at the legalists around us. We can look down our noses at people around us and say that they're not worthy of God's grace at the level I've received it. Now the beauty of this is I don't see anywhere the story of Saul's conversion where that attitude rises up. I'm making the assumption because these people are sinners like I am and like you are, that I'm sure there were a few people in the camp that thought to themselves, why in the world would God do this to Saul? Why would he choose Peter, who, who denied him? 
three times publicly. As he was arrested and being beaten and hung on a cross, Peter ran like a coward, and now he's the one that's preaching sermons and building the church. He doesn't even have a seminary degree, right? But God chooses who God chooses. And then God fills those people with His Spirit and God does what He wants to do through them. The impact that Paul made on the kingdom is incalculable. You, you cannot put a quantifiable number to the amount of impact Paul, the, the Apostle Paul, had on the kingdom and the furtherance of the gospel. So let's pick up at the second half of verse 19. It says this, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. For some days he stayed in Damascus, right? And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. What a flip to the script. Listen, Saul had a head full of biblical understanding. He had a head full of Jewish understanding of the Word of God. He would say later on in one of his letters that he is a Hebrew amongst Hebrews, challenging the reader to find someone who obeyed and understood the law better than I did. That's what his challenge is. And in this moment, when he meets Jesus, all that information gets connected to the person of Jesus, and it changes the whole narrative, the whole story changes. And now, not only is he a great communicator and a great teacher, but the gospel has infected all of his biblical information, and now it's accurate. Now it's accurate information that leads to life, not scholarly information that leads to legalism. And so now he is standing, and isn't it just like God to strategically lay this out, okay? So when Saul starts preaching in the synagogue in Damascus, people don't completely know who he is. They're saying, isn't this the guy that wreaked havoc on the church in Jerusalem? And then in Damascus, he's confounding the teachers, right? It's like God is giving him a chance to get really good at his craft before what we're going to see here in a minute, he sends him back to the lion's den into Jerusalem. Because if he would have come out and, and started preaching in the synagogues in Jerusalem right away, there's a pretty good chance he would have had no base, no help, no support. He would have been preaching a message about Jesus, and the Jewish leaders would have killed him for it, and that would have been the end of Saul, but not how God did it. God met him on the way to Damascus, where people weren't completely sure who he was, what he looked like, or what he was about. So now he has loyalty there from the followers of Jesus that are living in Damascus. He gets a base built up. He actually, later on, we see that he had followers. By the time he gets to Jerusalem, he's already made disciples. That's crazy. And isn't it just like God to line these pieces up perfectly so that by the time Saul hits Jerusalem, there's enough backing behind this conversion of his to Jesus that he has some people step into his story and say, no, 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 this is legit. 
So that's the end of uh, verse 22. It says that he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. He is taking all of this information that he has in his head, and now grace is infected, and it's become accurate. Verse 23, and when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Just like these guys, they're up to the same old tricks. Like, like, like wouldn't you hate to be someone disagreed with the Jewish leaders back then? Like, no, that, I, that shirt's not blue, it's black. No, it's blue. No, it's black. Kill him. How dare you disagree with me? Like, that seems to be their tactic. As soon as you don't line up with them, they're like, we're going to kill you. And so this plot comes out after many days had passed, not weeks, not years, many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Now, just stop there and think about this. The church that Saul came in to persecute and kill is now his ally that is lowering out of the city so that he can escape the Jews who gave him paperwork to go into the city to kill the church. That's amazing, and it happens, according to Luke, in a matter of days. So, verse 26, and when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Now, think about this. The the followers of Jesus are meeting together somewhere. Let's just picture that they're in somebody's house and someone knocks on the door and they go to the people and they're like, dude, it's Saul. Do you think they're thinking he's there to join in on their Bible study? Because the last time this guy was in town and he was coming to your door and you were following Jesus, he was pulling you out and throwing you in prison or murdering you. So Saul's now at the door saying, no, no, guys, let me in. I love Jesus now. Yeah, okay, Saul. We don't believe you. So in verse 27, this is a beautiful thing about the church. But Barnabas, we've seen this guy show up before, and every time he shows up, it's like, I like that guy. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. All it took for Saul to earn the trust of the church was someone the church already trusted. A brother in Christ said, no, 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 I I stake who I am in Christ on Saul's conversion being legit. And they took him in right away. No questions asked. They believed him based on the recommendation of a brother they already trusted. So then verse 28, he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of Jesus. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. There's two responses to the gospel. You can accept the gospel as truth and embrace it and allow it to change your life, or you can reject it, which leads you to hate it. Hate shows up looking nice sometimes, but when you don't love Jesus, you hate Jesus. Jesus says that before you were my friend, you were at enmity with God. You were an enemy of God. 
So when the brothers learned that, that Saul was in trouble, that the Hellenists, the Hellenist Jews were looking to murder him, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church, listen to this, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. Do you, do you realize what's happening here? Acts 1.8, go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. It's happening. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built up because the one who was wreaking havoc, God changed his life. And walking in the fear of the Lord, no longer the fear of Saul, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Saul being changed, changed the course of the church's confidence. They said, if God can take the entity that we feared most in this world and turn it into one of His greatest allies, then we have nothing to fear but not doing what God told us to do. And they set out, and from that moment on, the church just explodes. Not that it hasn't already been exploding, but at this point, there is a deep-rooted obedience that we haven't seen before, and it's all because God changed Saul's heart. Listen, we can fight against who God says we are, but in the end of the day, God wins out. You are who God says you are. You have redemption afforded to you. You have the opportunity to being adopted into the family of God and God saying, you are my son, you are my daughter, full rightful heirs to the kingdom of God. That is who you are. Now, you can claim your birthright or you can deny your birthright, but at the end of the day, God will win out. And you will live your life denying the birthright afforded to you and then live your eternity in separation from God, or you will live in the beauty and bounty of your birthright. So I would challenge you with this. Don't fight off the better version of you that the Lord wants to create in and through you. Don't fight that off. There's a, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, there is a better version of you ready to explode onto the scene. Don't fight that off. And if you're here today and you don't have that deep love for Jesus, I would say that we can pray that the scales fall off your eyes and you see Jesus for who He is. And you say, I want to be baptized. I want to be a part of the family of God. I want everyone to know it. I want to live different from this point on because if God is for you, who can stand against you? And church, God is for you. You are who He says you are. God, thank you for being the author of such awesome stories. Each one existed in this room. So many different stories exist right here, breathing the same air, breathing the same oxygen. In this space, we are all uh, walking pictures of your grace afforded to us. Lord, if there are those here that don't know you, I pray that today's the last day they can say that. If there are those here that have sort of a lackluster view of what it looks like to walk in obedience to you, I pray that today's the last day they say that. Or today that we can together, collectively, in our own hearts and then collectively together, cry out to you with joy in our hearts that say that you are for us. We are who you say we are.